Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And our text this morning will be verses 13 to 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning at verse 14. Hear the word of God. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the Amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, In the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we tackle our text this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we pray that you would illuminate your scriptures to us this morning. We know that nothing will be accomplished this morning without the work of your Holy Spirit. And so may he teach us the truths of your word this morning. And I pray that everything that is said from this pulpit will be accurate and true, that you will guard your church and your word. And I pray that we would go forth again rejoicing in what you have revealed to us in your word this morning, and that we would go out again more conform with the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, we have been going through this chapter, verse chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, and we have been really dealing with the Corinthian problem, we would call it. As we said before, there was really only one imperative back in chapter 12, verse 31, desire earnestly the greater gifts. He goes through chapter 13 talking about superiority of love, but as he comes into chapter 14, it hits tone changes and it's like he's now zeroing in on the problem. And he's gonna start giving commands, he's gonna start telling us what what the Corinthians need to do and ultimately what we should do. And so as he comes into this chapter, he's zoning in on this problem that the Corinthians are wanting to speak in tongues. And they want to speak in tongues because they think it's something that is the greatest manifestation of the Spirit. And ultimately, it is motivated by selfishness and a desire to promote themselves. And instead of making the church more spiritual, instead of it making it better, it is actually tearing the church down. It's causing confusion. And so Paul again begins chapter 14 with this pursue love. In other words, we know that love is the supreme 
virtue that will go throughout eternity. But he says, but don't remember, but remember you as a church are to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And again, he's not speaking to the individual, but to the corporate body saying, this is what you need to see is valuable. Especially prophecy. Because he told us that prophecy was, was the one gift that was going to edify the church the greatest. The value of the gifts are, are rated on how they edify the body. And since gifts are given to us for the building up of the body, for the common good, it says in 12 verse 7, that is how they are to be used. And so he went through really verses 1 to 5 and gave us the, the reasons why prophecy is superior to tongues. And we simply saw that tongues, can, unless they are translated, no one understands them. Tongues on themselves do not edify like prophecy. Tongues edifies the individual. And we saw that that edification there is not a good thing. Because if they're given for the common good and they're given, as we said, spiritual gifts are outgoing, they're to be given out and to help others, then anything that edifies you goes against the purpose for which the gift is given. And then we saw that prophecy was superior to tongues because tongues needed to be interpreted. In other words, there was no edification unless they were interpreted. And then we moved on and we saw really the necessity of understanding for edification. And this is really what he's hammering through this whole, this whole chapter. It's not good to speak in tongues if no one understands. You actually have to understand to be built up. And this is why we would understand that if, when he talks about being edified, tongues edifying an individual, it can't be positive because that's exactly the opposite to what spiritual gifts are given for and if the tongue is not understood how can it actually edify anyone in fact it actually does the opposite and so he says it becomes confusing and so he illustrated it through instruments and through languages he says if you play if you play an instrument with no tune and and, and no rhythm or anything no one's going to know the tune no one's going to respond to it he says, if you speak in a, in, a, in a foreign language, no one will understand you. You'll be a barbarian. He says, no one is learning. No one is being edified. And so he says again, in, in, at the end of that section in verse 12, be zealous for spiritual gifts. Seek to abound what? For the edification of the church. And again, his point is edification of the corporate body, not yourself, but of the corporate body. And that comes through your mind. And so Paul, as he comes to this next section here, he gives us three corrections so that they use their spiritual gifts for what? Edification. He wants to bring them back so that they're using their gift for the edification of the church. And he gives them three corrections or exhortations. He says, I want, I want you to understand this, that tongues need to be interpreted. Do not speak in tongues unless they're interpreted. Use your mind in worship. And then he follows it by simply saying, follow my example. Follow my example, how I use my gifting, how I address the church so that corporately we are understanding what we must do. So he begins this section with therefore. And what do we say about therefore? 
If there's a therefore, we need to ask why there's a therefore, therefore, right? So we, why is there a therefore there? Well, Paul has just exhorted the Corinthians to seek to abound for edification of the church. So verse 13 functions to demonstrate how the gift of tongues can work toward that ends. So he says, this is, this is, this is what the, the function of this verse is, to demonstrate how the gift of tongues can work toward the edification of the church. And, sin, and of course, the question is, well, how is that? By exhorting the tongue speaker to pray with the goal of interpretation in view, that is how that question is answered. By exhorting the tongue speaker to pray with the goal of interpretation in view, that is how the church will be edified. Now, a slightly more uh, literal interpretation might be, therefore the one who speaks in tongue must pray that he, is interpret, he, that he can interpret. In other words, it's a command. This is a, an imperative here. You must pray. You must pray that you can interpret. Well, that begs the question, what does he mean by that? Well, first of all, we have to understand what he doesn't mean by that. He does not mean that you are to pray for a gift that you do not have. He does not mean you are to pray for a gift that you do not have. You are nowhere commanded in Scripture that you pray for a gift that you do not have. In fact, we're clearly told in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, but the one and same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Not you will, not as you ask, but as he wills. So the Holy Spirit is the one who is giving out spiritual gifts. And those spiritual gifts come when? You get them later? At salvation, right? We, we, we talked about that, how spiritual gifts are given to you when? At salvation, you are given the Holy Spirit and you are given your spiritual gifting there. And we know this, that 1 Corinthians 12.30 says, All do not have the gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? In other words, not everybody's supposed to have every gift. So why would we be searching for gifts that when it's clear that everybody's not supposed to have them? Now he also says, and later on here, Paul says, if there's no interpreter, let what? Let him keep silent. He's to keep silent. So he can't be telling him to, be, to call for it because there's supposed to be an interpreter there. And it, and it would appear that the church knew who the New Testament prophets were. There was those with the gift of interpretation. Now, if you look across the church, it should, be, it should be clear to you, at least in certain categories, who people are, right? There's a, there are, you're going to know well, that, that guy has the gift of teaching. This guy has the gift of mercy. There's going to ha you're going to see that, and it should be obvious. And I'm, I am certain that the early church understood who could interpret and who couldn't. 
And so there were those already who knew, who had the gift of interpretation who could be seen and, sh and would need to be present to speak in tongues. Now, again, some might refer back to, well, he seek the greater goods, and then he says, seek, seek spiritual gifts. But again, we want to remind you, like we did in the introduction, he's not speaking to individuals to seek it, but for who? The congregation to see those gifts as valuable and to prioritize them. So what Paul is saying here is certainly not that you as an individual are to pray that you can get the gift of interpretation. It goes against everything that he has said. So what does it what does it mean? What does he mean by pray for it to be interpreted? Well, basically there are two ways to take this. There are two ways to take this. And this is what I love. It really doesn't matter which way you go, you, came, you come to the same conclusion. So there's safety in that. But he says this. The first way is this, is to see the prayer as a personal request in the speaker's native language for the ability to interpret. In other words, a, per a person stands up and he begins to pray in, in normal language that he will have the ability to interpret. This would be you have the desire to speak in a tongue and the desire is there, but you are unsure that interpretation is present. And so before you speak, you make a request to God for the ability to interpret that message. And apart from that ability given, you must keep silent. If that is what Paul is saying, then Paul can really conceive a scenario where the tongue speaker does both tasks, speak in tongues and gives the interpretation. That's a possibility, but that's, and it could be. The other is to see the prayer as a corporate prayer offered in a tongue where the tongue speaker stands to pray in an unlearned human language given by the Spirit of God. Taken this way, the phrase or clause that he might interpret signals the goal or the purpose of the tongue's prayer. The goal of praying in tongues needs always to be to the view of interpretation. And if this is what Paul is saying, then the point is the same. And tongues are only permitted when interpretation is present. And so, re again, regardless of how Paul intends to speak here, it is the same point. Again, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by one or two or the most three, each in turn and one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. That's the point. No interpretation, no interpreter, no tongues. And that's what he's implying as he, as he comes off, off of verse 12. And so the inference is drawn off the exhortation to seek to abound for the edification of the church. And so for the Corinthians who wanted to speak in tongues, who, who obviously were speaking in tongues out of order, it meant only speaking in tongues and using that gift when accompanied by interpretation. And so Paul says, 
here's, here's, what's go- here's what needs to happen. Here's, here's what you need to correct. You're so busy trying to what? Speak in tongues and to, and to have this going on. And he says, actually, only if there's interpretation, only if it can be interpreted. In other words, there needs to be a refraining from using of the gift if there is no interpretation. You cannot be using it unless it's interpreted. And so it is actually forbidden to speak in tongues if you do not have an interpreter. Well, the second corrective, he says, not only, not only are you, uh, do not speak in tongues unless in, interpreted, but he also says, as he corrects them in their corporate worship, that you must use, engage the mind to worship. You must engage the mind to worship. He says, for I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. For if I pray in, my t- in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. If we were going to, if we were going to interpret that, we would simply say this, at the beginning of the verse, if I speak in an unknown foreign human language, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So the million dollar question becomes, what does he mean by my spirit? What does he mean by my spirit? If I speak in an unknown language, and we said that tongues was a a foreign language, that was not learned, but was supernaturally given the ability to speak. What do we mean by my spirit prays? What does he mean by that? Well, I think I would understand that he is saying that the human spirit knows that the Holy Spirit is praying through him, but the mind does not understand what is being said. He senses he is worshiping, but he does not know exactly how. He's trying to convey that he is doing, Paul is trying to convey that he's doing something even though it bypasses his mind. In other words, you would be aware that you are speaking in tongues. You realize that the Holy, remember this is a Holy Spirit gift. You You would understand that you were speaking in tongues. It's not like you black out. It's not like you go into a trance, but rather that you would understand that you were speaking in tongues. It'd be similar where he goes in the next verse and he talks about singing. Well, you don't, you would be pretty sure that you know that you were singing, right? You start opening your mouth and even though you're singing in a different language, Swahili, you're singing in Swahili, you're pretty sure you're singing a song because you realize that what's coming out of you sounds like music. You might not know what you're saying, but you know it's music. So Paul is not trying to compare private tongues with corporate tongues here. Some people say, well, if you're praying in your spirit, that means you're praying in a a private language, in in a private place. 
In fact, private tongues are never mentioned. The problem is that tongues are without interpretation, are useful, useless. And so why would you use them unless they're interpreted? And his argument, in order to bring cognition and understanding and edification to the church, is not meant to spark one's imagination to private tongues, but to reign in the Corinthians' habit of speaking in tongues without edification, without interpretation. Now, many commentators believe at this point that Paul is saying that when I pray in my spirit, that there's a way to commune with God without reasoning. Garland says, the spirit may be in prayer for communion with God without the reason formulating the thoughts and feelings into comprehensible language. Martin says, it is just an enraptured fellowship with God when the human spirit is in such deep hidden communion with the divine spirit that words at the best are broken utterances of of our secret selves are formed by spiritual usurp requiring no mental effort. In other words, your spirit doesn't require any mental effort. It just starts making communion with God. Now here's their proof. That's it. You just had it. They have made declaration strong statements that declare it to be true without any biblical proof for the ability of the human spirit to communicate without words. You will not find it anywhere in Scripture. Well, they do, they do have one proof text that they like to go to, Romans chapter 8, verse 26. This one is sometimes used, not by all, but some. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. See, the Spirit groans. But the problem is, who's doing the groaning there? The Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit is the one who is groaning. He who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so it's not the believer who's groaning. It's not his spirit that is groaning. It is that the Holy Spirit takes our prayers and intercedes for us. So it's not your spirit groaning, it's the Holy Spirit groaning. This in no way proves that the human spirit groans to God because it is the Holy Spirit, it says, that groans. Now, 
And so there is a communication in the Trinity to God who understands what the Holy Spirit is doing, but not us. In fact, Scripture warns exactly against the idea of trying to pray, as Paul says here, praying in the Spirit without your mind. Matthew chapter 6, we read that this morning. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what you've done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In other words, He says, don't use vain repetition. It's really the parallel meaning to too much speaking. The general agreement that the idea is we are stammering, that the word means we are stammering in verse six, verse seven, Matthew six, seven. We may conclude that Jesus spoke against prayer, which constituted of unintelligent speech or babbling similar to pagan prayers. It was common for the Gentiles to pray to their God in babbling and repetition, hoping that the volume of their prayer would reach their God. They basically took out all the rational thought in it, simply repeated sounds and noises and words, hoping that he would answer. And Jesus says, do not pray this way. In fact, Christ did the exact opposite. As he continues in this passage, in that same passage, he says, actually, I'm going to teach you how to pray, and I'm going to teach you how to to pray in a clear, rational way, in, in a way that is understandable. And so Jesus then goes into the disciples' prayer in Matthew chapter 6. This is how you should pray. These are the words you should use. Here are the concepts that must be put across. When when we're called to make our requests known, he doesn't say, be so anxious about your, your, your concerns that you empty your mind and pray through your spirit. There's nothing in Scripture that says that. There are no examples. Nowhere in Scripture. In fact, everything that's taught in Scripture is exactly the opposite. Pray for these things. I pray for you this way. In fact, Jesus' example of prayer to his disciples tells us something. Jesus' example of his prayer in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane should also give us a clue. If there was ever a time where you needed to pray through your spirit and cry out to God, it was when Jesus was facing the cross, recognizing that he would face the wrath of God. And what did he do? He spoke words, thoughts. Take this cup for me, but not your will, but 
thy will, not my will, but thy will be done. We saw that Romans 8.26 teaches that the Holy Spirit helps all believers in prayer. Every believer has full access to God on the basis of Christ's death, and every believer is told to pray and that he will be heard. Hence, there is no need for a special language in which to pray to God. The Holy Spirit is already groaning for us. You don't need to do it. And the New Testament is replete with statements that the lack of understanding and knowledge are deficiencies in the, in the believer's life, not benefits. It might interest you also that tongues are never used in the biblical example of prayer directed to God, not once. You have to ask yourself, how can praying in a tongue to be a private language if the gift of tongues is assigned to unbelievers? What good does that do? If you're praying in your private prayer language in your closet, what sign to unbelievers is that? Quite frankly, the Bible makes it clear that not everyone possesses the gift of tongues, which means that not everybody would have the gift of what? A spiritual language. So now we have a gift that is edifying an individual and not everybody can have it. Don't we all need to be edified? Again, going against the purpose of the common good. So Paul says, again in, in our text, for if I pray in, what is, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays but my mind is unfruitful. And again, contrasting from his human spirit in which he has been speaking in by the Holy Spirit in an unknown foreign language, he says, unless it is interpreted, my mind is what? Unfruitful. In other words, I can't understand what's going on. I, I'm not edified. I can't be built up. I might, because I don't understand it. Now, some people have said, well, you get, you get a blessing from this because you, you know the Holy Spirit's using you, right? There, there's some sort of edification or building up because you know, because every time you use a spiritual gift, there's some blessing that comes. And that's true. But when I chop firewood, I get warm. But that's not the purpose of chopping firewood. It's to make a fire. And so we must ma make sure that we don't, we don't make the side effects of chopping wood, the purpose of it. The purpose of cutting wood is to make a fire. And the, the reason that we are given spiritual gifts is to serve others. Now, I may get a blessing, but that's a side effect. It's not the main course. So he says, my mind is unfruitful. And you can only imagine if his mind is unfruitful, how much more is the minds of those who are listening to him unf 
fruitful. If I sat up here and I, and I babbled away in Swahili, well, it may be clearer than some of the sermons, but you wouldn't understand what I'm saying, right? It, what good would it do? Would you want to come here week after week and have me speak to you in Swahili and you not understand it? Not a bit. It would be no, you no good. You would, you would find another church, and you should, right? You need to go to a place where your mind is engaged by the word of God. And so he says, what, what, really, he says, what is the outcome then? What's the use? What's the purpose of it? Why, why would I do it? It's of no value to anyone in the church. And Paul says, I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. In other words, he says, means two things. One of two things. Paul will pray in a language that he understands. And when he prays in a tongue, or when he prays in a tongue, it will be, inter it will be interpreted. So he says, I, mean, I would rather, I'm either going to speak in a language that everyone understands. Or if I do pray in a tongue, it will be with interpretation. And in that sense, we are praying with the spirit and praying with the mind. He's either only going to pray in a language that he understands and his congregation can understand, or he will only speak in a tongue when he knows it will be interpreted because that is the only way to ensure that there is understanding. Again, he says, I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with my mind. Now we can draw a couple of things from that. First of all, he says, when I sing, I want to know what I'm singing. In other words, what's important in the song, not the melody, but what? The words, the words, right? For him, singing without, with just melody is what? Unfruitful, it's useless. And so when we come together and we sing corporately, we sing songs that are filled with theology and with the truths of God because that's what's important. And that's what should drive your singing, should be the truth that is in the words. That causes heart worship and you should be singing from a heart that's responding to the truth, not to the music. In fact, this word here for sing is, is originally means to play a harp. Through the years, it became to mean to sing to the accompaniment of a harp. And so he says, when you, when you come together, use your, what, your mind. What's important, remember this, he's comparing, he's comparing in my spirit where I understand something's going on to comprehension of what's actually being said. And so he's saying the important thing here are the words. Just as a side note, then we, we, we can gather a couple of things, right? First of all, you can sing in church. There are churches that say you can't sing and they don't sing at all. It's pretty clear that they were singing in Corinth. Number two, can you have instruments? <laughs> yeah, harp. 
I think there's several other passages in Colossians, etc., that that deal with this. But yeah, you can have musical instruments. So Paul says, sing, sing with your so, with your spirit, sing with your mind. So praying and singing in a tongue results in my spirit being engaged while my mind is unfruitful. I'm either going to pray in a language, in summary, I'm either going to pray in a language I comprehend or pray in a tongue when interpretation is guaranteed. But under no circumstances while I pray apart from interpretation, because if my mind is unfruitful and there's no interpretation, no one else will be understand and no one else will be edified, so I won't. He continues, otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen? In other words, as you give praise, if you give thanks, as you do that, as you are speaking in, in a tongue and you are doing this in public in the church, how is the ungifted going to say amen? Well, that makes pretty good sense. I, I don't get, you won't get a lot of amens if people don't know what you're saying. How can people say, you know, let it be so? How can you, how can you give God's blessing to something that you don't know what it is? Now it says, how will the, will the one fill the place of the ungifted? Well, who's the ungifted? Well, he's speaking of those who don't understand the language. This is the same word that Paul used of himself, being an untrained man. In other words, they were unlearned, unskilled. And the idea here is that you've got a whole congregation who's unskilled in the language because they don't speak that language. And he says, you're going to sit there and speak in a tongue, a foreign language to the people who don't understand you. And they're not going to say amen. They're not, at, you, might, you might be giving thanks to God and you might be giving praise to God and you might be uh, glorifying him, revealing truth from him. And yet, who can say amen? Because nobody understands it. He doesn't know what you're saying. He doesn't know what you're saying at all. Now, again, there are those who would say, well, if you bless in the spirit only, and, he, and he's talked about singing in the spirit, there must be an ability to praise God in, in ecstatic languages. There must be an ability to praise God. That, that's what he's saying here. Now, again, going against the whole context and against God, Paul's argument, they would insert here, oh, so I can praise God in my spirit only. Well, that's going to need some explanation. There must be some explanation showing why God would prefer to be praised in German, for example, by an Englishman, but would not consider the same praise from a German to be adequate. Right? That's, that's actually what's taking place here. God is more glorified if you speak in a foreign language than if you speak in your own language. Now, where is that in Scripture? 
Again, we're going to have to, we have to ask these questions. But it is even more difficult to explain why God would deem praise in unintelligible language or heavenly or angelic language speaking without your mind. Why would, why would, he, why would he do that? Is it better to praise uh, and to speak without understanding? In fact, is it so much better that he actually gave a miraculous gift for the purpose of praise? Is that what he gave gifts for? Did he give this specific gift so that you could praise him? This is so much better to praise him this way. Well, again, the answer is it's given for the common good, not for yours. No passage implies that that the praise of angels is better than the praise of men. You won't find that in Scripture. In fact, you see in Revelation chapter 4, you see the angels praising and you see the saints praising God in heaven side by side. No difference. It's all praise to God. Nothing in Scripture indicates that it is superior. There's no example of praise without words or thought. All examples are praise with words. You see them praising, and they are praising what? Even in heaven, the souls of men are praying what? With words. Worthy is the Lamb to take the book and break the seals. Right? Words. Thoughts. If there's ever a place for spiritual worship, you'd think it would be heaven, wouldn't you think? But they're praying with thoughts. 1 Corinthians 13 states that tongues will cease. But there is no apparent reason for the cessation of a gift which implies a supernatural ability to praise God. This would seem to be as permanent as love. So what it's saying is that your, your supernatural ability to praise God will cease. Now, if you believe that it stopped in the first century, then the supernatural ability of God stopped in 100 AD. If you believe that, there, that it's still open today, that means it'll cease when Christ comes. So now you won't have the supernatural ability to praise. Well, we know that we will continue to praise God throughout eternity, and yet we will, we will somehow have lost this gift. So again, nothing in Scripture talks about a praise language. Nothing indicates that there's any divisions within that. And again, did God give spiritual gifts specifically for you to, to praise Him? The answer to that is no. He gets praise through the use of your gift, but it was meant for the common good. pretty hard to say so let it be if you don't know what's being said all right he continues on for you are giving thanks well enough for you are giving thanks well enough 
And the implication here is you may be speaking in, in a foreign language and it may be something that is praising God and giving thanks to God, but you don't know what it is. There's no doubt that thanks has been expressed. And in fact, you might have put on a good show and you might have put on a good artistic performance, but people are unable to see or to know what you are doing. And so he says, there, there might, if, as, as you speak in the spirit, it might be thanks well enough, but the other person is not what? Edified. And that's the purpose of gifts. He says, you, the other person is not edified, and that's the problem. You might have put on a good show. You might have put, you might have even truly given thanks for what the spirit has given to you. But the whole purpose of the gifts is for what? Edification. And the problem is, is you're not edifying your brother. Edification should be the goal. Now, it's interesting when you think about this. If we are, again, giving thanks in prayer here. That prayer is, though it is to God, is also for what? Edification. Prayer is for edification of others. We pray to God, but it is also a side that we, we edify others. And so we might consider how we pray when we get together. In other words, Praying to God is, does not mean we disregard others completely in the room. There may be a necessity for us to shorten our prayers. There might be actually a necessity for you to pray. Because if you pray, it may be for the edification, the building up of others. And so there is that benefit. Yes, we pray to God and we are praying to him but our, our prayers ultimately will lead to the edification of others if we pray correctly. And so he says, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. In other words, if that, if that, in, if that tongue or, or that prayer or praise is not ultimately interpreted, it does nothing to edify the body. Well, then Paul says, not only are tongues to be interpreted, not only are to use your mind in worship, but he says, the third corrective is, follow my example. Follow my example. Paul says in verse 18, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. What? There may have been a temptation at this point for the Corinthians to think that Paul was down on tongues as if somehow there was something defunct with the gift of tongues. And Paul says, no, I'm not. I, I, there's nothing wrong with tongues. In fact, and I'm not, I'm not dishing tongues because somehow I'm not involved in tongues and I've never been able to speak in tongues and I'm jealous. 
But he says, I am actually grateful to God that I have spoken in tongues more than all of you. Now, immediately, we have a group of individuals who will say, see, there is the smoking gun. Paul spoke in a prayer language because he says, now listen to this. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words in my mind. See, he's not speaking in the church. Therefore, guess what? He is speaking in a prayer language. There it is. That's it. That's, that, that is the smoking gun that we were looking for. In fact, one commentator puts it this way, if I can find his quote. It has been common to treat the earlier personal references as rhetorical and therefore hyperbolic. This one, however, indicates that those references do indeed reflect Paul's own life in the spirit. Henceforth, one may have suspected that Paul was making distinctions between private, and devotion, private devotion and public worship. This sentence makes it explicit. This sentence makes it explicit. D.A. Carson's, there is no stronger defense of private use of tongues and attempts to avoid this conclusion turn out on inspection to be remarkably flimsy. And so the thing is, if he speaks in intelligent words in the church, he's obviously speaking in his private language at home. But is that what Paul says? Because Paul says, I speak in a private language somewhere else. And again, there's this, there, there, there is acts again, Nothing else said. We have made it a, a strong, bold statement without any kind of support at all. It's just laid out there. That's the way it is. But is that, is that actually what Paul says? No, he says, I speak in tongues more than all of you, which means what? He spoke in foreign languages more than all of them. Now, what were tongues given for? What were foreign languages given for? We touched on it earlier. Down in the, in, in the next part of the passage, he says, they're assigned to who? Unbelievers. So where might you bump into unbelievers? I don't know. What did Paul do? What, what, what would we call Paul? An evangelist and a missionary. So where might Paul have the use of tongues? When he went out to foreign countries, as he came, he spoke in their language so that they could understand the gospel. Now, is that not fit more appropriately with the rest of scripture and the purposes of tongues than to somehow invent here that he's speaking in a private language? And each one of these things, again, let us not confuse his examples and, and light our imagination to something that Paul never even considered. Paul was speaking as he went out as a missionary. He spoke in known languages to those people to confirm that message and to demonstrate to them the power of God. 
why would we have to assume that it's in his private chamber? Because we need to. Because it fits our preconceptions, but it does not fit the tenor of the whole passage. Paul keeps saying, use your mind, stay away from this, don't do this. The rest of Scripture says, use your mind, pray with your mind, praise with your mind. Why all of a sudden would we have to read this into this passage when it doesn't fit the rest of Scripture, doesn't fit the context? Because Paul is saying, use your mind. The problem with tongues is there's no understanding, don't do it. Paul says, however, in the church, I desire to speak five words, five words, rather than what? With my mind so that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. In other words, my desire is that I would rather speak five words that you understand so that I might instruct you, that I might give you something that you can understand, something to exhort you, some, some truth to call you to rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now it's interesting here because five words to 10,000 words are, is not the ratio. The Greek word translated 10,000 is the same word that is translated in Revelation chapter five. And it is the largest Greek number in Greek mathematics. And it talks in Revelation about angels and says the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000. In other words, it, it's the biggest number in Greek mathematics and he just keeps repeating it because the number's big. And so at, more accurately translated, if we, if we take what he's saying here, I would rather say five words with my understanding than quintillion words in an unknown language because there's no value to it. No one understands, nobody can hear, nobody can comprehend it, nobody is edified. And so Paul says, listen, follow my example. This is what I'm aiming at. I'm aiming at your intellect. I'm aiming at words that you will understand so that you can be edified. You can be instructed. Because all of that show, even, if, even the gift of the Holy Spirit of speaking in tongues is of no value if there's no comprehension. And so Paul says, when you come together, this needs to be your emphasis. Follow my example. I'm not trying to come there to show you how spiritual I am by speaking in tongues. I'm not coming to you to somehow uh, demonstrate who I am. My only goal is the edification of others. I don't need to be built up. I don't need to show off. I just want you to be built up in the truth of the word of God. So Paul leaves us with these three correctives. And he says, listen, understand again that edification is, is the goal of your spiritual gifts and edifications will not come apart from understanding. 
And so if you have the gift of tongues here, which they did have in the first century, guess what? Don't do it without interpretation because it doesn't help anyone. Understand that you need to worship and to praise God through your mind. That's where you need to be headed. If you want to be edified, use your head. And then he says, follow my example. This is, this is what I did. This is what I did when I came to you. I gave you the word of God. I didn't come with fancy speech, right? I just gave you the word in words that you would understand. So Paul says, here's my heart. Here's my example. Follow it. And we as a church must understand that emotion... And all of that does not drive the bus. Knowledge does. Doctrine does. In other words, we, it is what we know that will build us up. And then emotion and all of that will follow. But we must start as we come together to have the truth of the word of God go through our mind, not past our mind. And if we do that, we will be edified. We will grow in Christ. We will grow as a church into a fit bride for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truths. We thank you that you have given it to us so that we can understand what you would have for us. And even though the gift of tongues is no longer with us, we still understand the necessity of edifying one another with our gifts. And that edification needs to come through the mind. And I pray that you would help us to be a church that pursues your word and that we would be built up and we would build one another up in your word as the truths of your word change us and mold us into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this morning and for your word to us in your name. Amen.